on this series called Encounters with Jesus. We're, we're looking at some of the big questions of life and then looking at different people's encounters with Jesus, people who met Jesus, looking at snapshots and asking ourselves, but what did Jesus have to say about these big questions? So we did it slightly out of the order because of having to do the wedding one, the wedding week, because that made sense. Last week, Helen spoke to us about where should we look for answers and gave us that challenge about actually maybe we need to give sometimes Jesus the chance to answer when we might not first go to him. But this week, our question is, what is wrong with the world? (laughs) Oh, do not get people started on that one. Have we all regularly over the last month had conversations that have gone along the lines of, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. It's a popular topic of conversation, is it not? This, what is wrong with the world? This is what's wrong. This is what needs changing. Opinions abound on this topic. Now, I would suggest to you, if, it were, if we were asking what is wrong with you, let's say you're not feeling too well, and you want to know what's wrong with me, where would you go to look for answers? If you wanted to... Exactly. I'm so glad someone gave the answer I was looking for. Let's be honest, we would probably first Google it, yes, Dr. Google, and get ourselves a bit paranoid because clearly whatever it is, whatever sniffly goes we've got means we're about to die, frankly. After we've been to Google and perhaps consulted our mother, anyone else do that, consulted the mother, yeah? And, of course, have the the uninvited opinions of various friends and neighbours who clearly say, oh, Well, when I had that problem, it turned out to be this. You should do such and such. That worked for me. When we've done all of that process, we might hopefully finally get round to consulting a doctor, perhaps, who is probably a good person to consult, do we not think? So, but before we get into the serious stuff, therefore, as we're mentioning doctors, it is compulsory to share some doctor-doctor jokes, just to warm us up a bit, I think. So, My favourite doctor, doctor jokes. Here we go. Doctor, doctor, when I get this plaster cast off my arm, will I be able to play piano? (laughs) Well, yes, of course you will. You'll be able to play it beautifully. Brilliant, because I couldn't play it before. (laughs) That was classy, wasn't it? Um, Oh, I I, I like this one because I have a very dark sense of humour. So the doctor phones the patient. The patient says, oh, it's the doctor here. I've got bad news for you. Well, I've got two bits of bad news. Okay, what's the first bit of bad news? Well, the tests are back, and I can tell you that you have 24 hours to live. Wow, that's pretty bad. So so what's the other bit of bad news then? Because it can't get much worse than that. Well, says the doctor, I've been trying to call you since yesterday. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. And my personal favorite, you're going to like this one. Doctor, doctor, I'm suffering from insomnia. Ah, have you tried sleeping on the edge of the mattress? You'll soon drop off. Classy. Shall we get on to something a little more inspiring now, people? Okay, so the process a doctor would go through when you go and see them saying, what's wrong with me? They would look first and ask, what are your symptoms, yeah? And then from symptoms, they're going to look at diagnosis, what's actually wrong, and then treatment. I'm just mindful I have some doctors in the room here, so, you know, Namdi's looking at me there. Is that vaguely along the right lines, Namdi? Good, excellent, right answer. Okay, so, we need to look then, what are the symptoms 
of the world. If we're asking, what is wrong with the world? What are the symptoms? And probably a good place to look for symptoms of the world is the news. Okay? I know, I know, we don't want to be looking at that. Now, because I generally avoid looking at the news, because I just, I don't understand half of it, frankly. I mean, what, dare we say the Brexit word? What? I don't even know what's going on with that anymore. I've lost the plot, people. So I thought you guys could help me out here. Um, have I, I've not got to worry till October or something now, is it? I've, was it a, I, exactly, I don't know. But anyway, Brexit aside, what are some of the big news stories that have stuck in your minds over, over the last weeks or months? What are the things where you think, what's going on in the world? Who? Grumpy cat died. World-changing news there. Grumpy cat died. Changed your word. Good. I have no idea. There's a lot of stuff coming up about mental health. Mental health has become this big issue. But it's brilliant because people are actually starting to talk about it. So we've got a mixture there of a... It's terrible that there is such a problem with mental health going on. But people are starting to fight it. So mental health. What else, Clara? Increase in stabbings. This is not good, people. Climate change. All of this bad news about climate change. And there was that girl... Um, Greta Hujama flips it, who's been bunking off school as in protest or something, hasn't she? So again, so bad stuff, the climate change things, but there are individuals who are trying to put it right. Paul? Netherlands won Eurovision. And we came last. Yeah, yeah. Important stuff. My my particular favourite news story this week, which was even more relevant and important than that Eurovision one, there was the article which says that Duchess Meghan, whoever she is, reveals baby's feet. <laughs> wow! Mind blown. The new baby has feet, people. This is exciting stuff. So, we've got a real mixed bag, haven't we? There's some bad stuff. There's, there's, I'm, I'm sure Trump's about to start war with somebody else again or something. Is I've, I've, I've lost the plot with him. He's usually trying to start with. So there's, there's potential wars abounding and all the rest of it. So, But we've got a mixed bag there. A lot of stuff that is not good going on. And then we get these hopeful snippets of, of people or individuals who are trying to put things right. So the question is, that's the symptoms. But what's the diagnosis? All of those things are symptoms. What's the diagnosis? What's the sickness, that root reason behind it all? Now, because we're in church and we're Christians and we look to the Bible, of course, the answer that we all go for, oh, oh dear, it went twice, there we go, is this word, sin. The problem is sin. Now, the moment we bring that up, so if you're having that conversation, oh, the state of the world today, What's wrong with it? Ah, sin. Apparently that doesn't go down too well over the the coffee sort of thing. Because that word sin, it's a cringeworthy word, isn't it? Yeah? It's cringeworthy. It reeks of that kind of, this person is bad. Generally, the people who use the word sin are perceived to be saying, well, I'm good. But it's all those sinners who are making the world go wrong. The problem is, all of those sinners, I'm good, not me. That's the perception that it has. 
And so what I want us to dig into this morning is we're going to look at two encounters Jesus had with two different people to try and dig into this question of saying, well, if this word sin is what's wrong with the world, what does that actually mean? What are we meaning when we say sin is ultimately the problem? Sin is the diagnosis. So, the first encounter we're going to look at, we find in John chapter 4, verses 4 to 26. So, hang on, let me get to the right bit in my Bible. So, in this story, I'm going to read you from the message version, actually, because I prefer... Where's the message gone on my phone? One moment while I sort my technology. There it is, there. So in this story, Jesus has been traveling around, and he's traveling back towards Galilee, and he chooses on his way back not to follow the usual route that people would have followed, but to go through Samaria. Usually, um, Jewish people would avoid going through Samaria because that's where... The nasty, the sinners live, yeah. The Samaritans are, you know, not the kind of people you want to be hanging out with. And so usually they'd go around, but Jesus chooses to actually take the route through Samaria. And he arrives at a well. It's midday, they're worn out, it's time for lunch. And so if I read from verse 7, it says, A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, Would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. They've popped to the Tesco Express or something to get some sandwiches. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh, living water. The woman, I I like this woman, she's very practical, okay? She says, the woman said, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep, so how are you going to get this living water? I mean, like, seriously, is he going to, like, dangle down on his legs and get this water for her? How is he going to get it out of this well? Are you better than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it? He and his sons and livestock and passed it down to us. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. The water I give will be an artesian spring within. I have no idea what artesian means. Someone help me out here. Artesian? Perpetual, maybe. Everlasting, something like that. Anyway, a spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, Go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshipped God at this mountain, 
But you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? And we're going to pause the story there. So, Jesus has been left at this well while his disciples go to get food. And a Samaritan woman comes along. Now, we need to understand the perception of this Samaritan woman to to people in the time that this story would have happened. Okay, So, first of all, we've got this fact that Samaritans were not to be associated with by Jews. There was a connection, if you sort of trace back in their history, they do connect back, but largely, as the woman refers to her, the location of worship, there was there was a splitting off. The Samaritans, mixed up with some other dodgy stuff, were worshipping in the wrong place, and so they really were no-nos. Okay? You did not associate with Samaritans. More than that, Jesus identifies the fact that she's had five husbands, and the man she isn't she's living with now isn't her husband. Now, there could be a number of possible things there. Yes, she, she could be an illicit woman going round sleeping with other people's husbands. It could be that she is something like a concubine who's been passed around. Either way, she was not nice, for want of a better word. She was someone who would be regarded very lowly. And, and we see this particularly by the fact that she's coming to the well in the middle of the day. I don't know how much we know about the climate there. Can you imagine what the climate's going to be like in the middle of the day in Samaria? Hot, unbearable, and she's going to draw water, great big bucket, and lug it back home again. The women would not typically have gone to get water at this time of day. They would have gone early in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. She's there on her own drawing water. She's not part of that that social group of women who would all go together, you know, oh, how's the husband? How's it going with the kids? Chat as you go along, catch up with each other, draw your water together, let me give you a hand there, rolling the water up or however they did it. She is not part of that. She is going on her own. She is an outcast in society. And Jesus meets with her. And what I love about it is that he asks her for a drink. The Son of God, you know, the the ultimate up there, meets what society perceives as the lowest of lows and says, hey, can you give me a drink? I love that. But then, what is Jesus' diagnosis for her? See, this is what I love. He doesn't jump in to what she's doing wrong. He doesn't jump in and say, you're a Samaritan, you're worshipping in the wrong place, your beliefs are wrong, you've been with all these different men, you shouldn't be doing that, you should be married to one person and one person only. He doesn't jump into all of that. He brings up this topic of water, of thirst. He's asked her for a drink, and then he talks about this living water that means she'll never have to drink again. Now, she can probably relate to that idea of thirst, I don't know if any of us have ever been truly thirsty. Has anyone ever but really experienced severe thirst? My, my one experience of it was many years ago, nearly 16 years ago, in fact, because it was just after I'd given birth to my daughter, Kezia. Okay? Can I just say, this was in a heat wave. Okay? It was hot. I had been in labor for 24 hours, Okay, this was full-on, hard work. 
middle of a heat wave, and because I'd had something called preeclampsia, and so they, they were having to monitor my fluid output, after I'd given birth, I was on restricted fluid intake. And so I was allowed about that much in the bottom of a glass of water. I'd just spent 24 hours in labor in a heat wave, and I was allowed that much water. It did not quench my thirst. I wanted the whole jug straight down there, you know? You, you know the kind of thirst when you, you go to the fridge and you get the carton of orange juice and you just... Or is that just me that's done? Anyone else? No, just me. Okay, fine. I was only allowed this time back. I was desperate for water. I needed more. Now, we're unlikely to regularly experience that kind of thirst in our lives because we have these things called taps. So apart from when doctors and nurses are being really cruel and nasty to us, we, we, we all the, Lydia, you, you can relate to this, Lydia, can't you, with your, your restricted fluids? Sucking on ice cubes or something is apparently the way to go. I'm not convinced that's going to help in a heat wave, though, okay? I need more than an ice cube. But what I would question you, that, that kind of, oh, I just need more, I need to glug more, might not be water you feel that for, but what is it in your life that you thirst for in that way? What is it that you're just, I need, I need more, I need more of? Maybe your thirst is to be loved. I need to be loved. I need more reassurance that I'm loved. Maybe it's for a sense of purpose. I, I need to feel like I'm achieving something, like, like I'm, I'm doing something worthwhile here. Maybe your thirst is, is just to feel on top of things for once, to feel in control. What is it that you thirst for? And then what do you try to satisfy that thirst with? What do you try to satisfy that thirst with? See, Jesus sees with this woman, he identifies she has a thirst in life. If you imagine her as the lowest of the lows, shunned by society, I would imagine she's pretty thirsty to be accepted to be loved. And yet the places where she is trying to get that thirst quenched are never going to satisfy her. We don't know whether it's by her own choice or because other people have put her into that situation, but she has been passed around from one man to another, perhaps each time hoping that this person will value her, that this person might even love her, that this person might keep her safe or respect her, perhaps but they're never going to. They're never going to satisfy that thirst. She's trying to quench her thirst with the wrong thing. And so when Jesus brings this topic up and he says, well, you've had five husbands, I can relate to her because she changes the subject. Let's not talk about my husbands. Ah, You're a prophet. Let's talk about where we should worship. Let's just move on, change the subject, and not deal with that. So we'll let her do that for now. She's moved on. Because we're going to look at another encounter that Jesus has. And we're going back slightly in John's Gospel to John chapter 3. This is an encounter with someone quite different. 
So let me just find chapter 3, John chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1. Let me just put it into... Okay, here we go. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus said, Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Please no, we do not want to go there. (coughs) It was bad enough the first time on the way out. (coughs) And we'll we'll pause the story there. The the conversation does continue because this is a very different meeting. (coughs) Before, please, thank you, Mel. Before, Jesus was meeting with someone who was very much the outcast, the lowest of the lows. This time he's meeting with this guy called Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was up there in society. He was respected. He was the super holy. You you know those those kind of people who are super holy? You, You know the sort who, in the prayer meetings, they pray the really spiritual prayers? The ones that just sound really, you know, yeah? The the ones that really know their Bible and who can come up with not just what the Bible says, but also the reference from where it comes from. Yeah? Okay, because I can generally remember the gist of what it says, but I can't remember where in the Bible it says it. He was well up there. And it's interesting that he comes to see Jesus at night. I wonder if actually he was a little bit embarrassed that he was going to see Jesus. Perhaps he didn't want too many people to know about it. And... When he comes to speak to Jesus, look at what he says. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he's coming to Jesus, and he's telling Jesus what he knows. This is a man who likes to be in control. Thank you, Mel. He obviously doesn't really know it all, because if he did, he obviously doesn't really know it all, because if he did know it all, if he was completely in control, he wouldn't need to come and see Jesus. He's clearly come to him for a reason. He you know, presumably has some questions. But he likes to give the impression, yes, 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 we're, we're on a level, you and I. I know what's going on here. I, I understand, you know, we, we can talk to each other as peers, because I know my stuff. He likes to be in control. But Jesus' response to him is to say, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You need to start over. You need to be born again. Now, I wonder if you can imagine a time when you've been working on a project for some time and then someone's told you, "Uh uh-uh, scrap it, you need to start over. Ever had that happen? My most recent one was um, 
I, I work in a primary school during the week, and I'm the RE coordinator for the school. And when I first joined the school, I had to look at the... It was a little bit disorganised when I arrived, and I, I like to be organised with things. I like things colour-coded and, you know, neat and tidy. And so I looked at the RE syllabus that the, the um, local council set, and I had to look and say, right, so what topics do we need to do? Which year group has to do which topic? And I looked at all this in detail. I planned out what we call a long-term plan for the next four years of, to make sure we'd go through the cycle so that every child in the school, by the time they reached the end of their time in the school, would have covered everything that they were required to cover. I set it all out beautifully in a nice plan that I put on the server at school so all the teachers would know how to work with it. Um, I looked at how you were supposed to assess it, and I provided, I set up little sheets for the teachers that would show them, you know, what do you need to assess when? And, you know, it was all colour-coordinating, what's in key stage two and what's in key stage one. I was just getting to the point where people had finally cottoned on to the system. We were about two years into this four-year cycle, and it was beautiful, and it was lovely and colourful and, and organised and wonderful. And then the county council decided to introduce a new syllabus with completely different stuff. And so everything that I'd been working on, that I'd just about got there, now had to be scrapped because we were doing completely different topics. And the method for assessment, the assessment statements were completely different. And I'd only just got my staff to the point where they knew what they needed to do. And I had to say, oh, all change, guys. Forget that four-year plan that we had, that we were, you know, one or two years into. We're starting from the beginning. This did not make me happy. The thing that makes me nervous now as well is apparently the county council review the syllabus every four years. Okay? This is the first year of the new syllabus right now. So three-ish years from now, they're going to review it. And if they tell me that they are providing a new syllabus again, I am not going to be happy. We don't like being told that we need to start over, especially when we feel like we're doing quite a good job, actually. Yeah? If you feel, yeah, this is going well, I'm on the ball here, we're achieving things. We don't like being told we have to start over. And yet, that, yet that's the message Jesus is giving Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Now, you can understand with some people's lives saying, you know what, scrap it and start from the beginning, yeah? You might say, oh, your life's gone so badly wrong, yeah, scrap it, start over. But Nicodemus here, you know, he's, he's like one of the leaders, leaders of the Pharisees. He's up there. He knows his stuff. He's acquired all this knowledge. He's probably living a really good life. He's probably managing, as most Pharisees did, to tick off, yes, yes, I follow that rule, and yes, yes, I'm quite good at following that rule too. And actually, I even follow the little extra rules for the extra super holy people. And yet, he is being told, you've got to start over. You need to start again. Surely for him, doesn't he just need to make a few little tweaks here and there, maybe? No, Jesus says, you've got to be born again. You've got to start over. And the frustrating thing for Nicodemus, the man who likes to be in control, the man who likes to think, I've got this. Just think for a moment. Some of us might relate to this more than others. When a baby is being born, in this process of birth, who is it who does the hard work? 
of giving birth. The mum, yeah, does the baby do much? No, it, the husband. Mine was passed out on the floor. Okay, just saying. He was whisked off to a and and got more medical attention than me. <laughs> the baby doesn't have a lot of control. I, I believe, technically speaking, the baby releases some hormone that sets the process off, apparently. But, but generally speaking, in the process of giving birth, the baby just sits there, maybe getting squidged a bit, and it maybe has to, like, squidge round a bit at some points. But generally speaking... The baby doesn't do the hard work. It's the mother who does the hard work. So Nicodemus being told, you've got to be born again. This isn't about him being in control and working harder and doing the right things. This is something he can't achieve himself. Being born again, starting fresh with God, is something that God does for us. So let's try and draw these things together then. We started off with this question. Oh, where's it gone? This clicker is more sensitive than I'm used to. We started off with this question, what is wrong with the world? And we've brought out this word sin. We've looked at the symptoms of all the stuff that's going on and say, well, the root problem, the diagnosis between everything we see wrong in the world is sin. Because we very easily look at the symptoms and say, ah, it's poor parenting. It's corrupt politicians. It's this, it's that. This root problem of sin doesn't lie actually in what people are or aren't doing. The problem lies within each one of us in our hearts. With the woman at the well, her problem wasn't so much in what she was doing with her life as the fact that where she was looking to quench her thirst... She was looking to other people to satisfy that deep thirst inside her, to be loved, to be accepted, to be recognized even. Only Jesus could satisfy that deep need. And Nicodemus, he does need to start over. Yeah, it might look on the outside like he's doing a good job of his life, but he's still trying to quench his thirst the wrong way. His thirst to be in control, to be respected, to be a high achiever, he's looking to satisfy by doing all this stuff. And so he comes to Jesus in that way, yeah, we're on a level. I I know this stuff, I'm good. But actually, he's never going to quench his thirst that way because he's never going to be good enough. If you want to think of the doctor analogy we had earlier, Nicodemus is doing a great job, perhaps, of trying to um, treat his symptoms to make himself look good, but he hasn't cured the underlying sickness of that needing to start again with God, to look to him to satisfy our thirst. I wanted to give you a sort of an analogy of what we're getting at here. And I thought, what better an analogy than cake? We can all relate to cake, can't we? And I looked up on Google, people who'd made cakes of planet Earth. Okay? We've got some beautiful specimens here. So, nice butter icing approach. 
Liking the cake there? Is that good? Yeah, yeah. Not bad, not bad. It gets better. Okay. Ooh. That looks as though it might. Is that vaguely accurate, actually, geographically? Possibly. Not sure. Okay, okay. Are you ready for this one? We've, we've got a good-looking cake coming up here, people. Oh. We've even got the Antarctic in white for the ice. Now that is a classy cake, people. I, I should warn you, we have peaked here because the next specimen I have for you. Good effort. Yeah, that, that would be my attempt at the cake. Now, what I want you to see here, all of those cakes we look at and judge on the icing. But actually, if every single one of those cakes was baked with salt instead of sugar, doesn't matter how good the icing is, you still got to start over. Yeah? And sometimes in life, we go around trying to prettify our icing. You know, maybe you feel like this last cake, like actually your icing ain't looking too good. Or maybe actually you're like the one before where you think, you know what, actually... I think I'm doing quite well. My life's looking good. But actually, if our cake's been made with salt instead of sugar, it's no good. We're looking in the wrong place. We need to start over. Who or what are you looking to to quench your thirst? So do you want to ask the band to pop back through, please, John? Yeah, thank you. Um, Just take a moment then as we finish our time together this morning, to ask yourself that question really honestly. Now, maybe you did start over again. Maybe you were born again at some point in your life. You started that journey saying, I'm giving up trying to do my own icing. I'm starting over. I'm starting that new life with God. Or maybe you haven't done that yet. Whichever one, you can probably relate to some of this. Maybe you relate most to that woman at the well where you actually look at your life and you think, I have messed up. My life does not look good. And I've been looking in the wrong place to put things right, to satisfy it. And I I need to start over. Or maybe you relate more to Nicodemus. And actually, if you looked at yourself, you'd say, "I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm trying hard on this. I'm doing a good job. But whichever one of those you are, unless you are looking to God, to Jesus, to satisfy you, you still are broken. You've still got that root problem. Because we can only really start to put things right in our lives. We can only really start to put things right in the world when our focus has turned from all that stuff, all of those problems, to God. When we start that new life with him, that's when we grow. And we very easily, guys, even if we've already started that new life, we very easily slip back into looking to quench our thirst elsewhere. And so, as we finish with the last song this morning, let's take a moment to ask ourselves, where am I really looking to quench my thirst? Where am I really looking? 
Am I looking to things of the world? Am I looking to other people to make me feel loved? Am I looking to other people to be accepted? Am I looking to my own achievements or stuff to make me feel worthy? Am I looking to other people or stuff to make me feel safe and secure? And let's strip those things away. Let's get back to the beginning. Because Jesus is the only one who will satisfy those desires of our hearts. And what he does, the living water that he brings, will satisfy forever. We won't have to then keep trying more and more. What he has done for us, his love for us that he showed us when he died on the cross, is enough for everything. So take a moment to reflect.